Our scripture reading tonight is from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. If you'll read along with me, it says in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boerginies, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but he is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those sitting around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that the meditations of our hearts together and the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I noticed an article this past week uh, came up online from the Daily Telegraph uh, print in the UK. And the article was about Dustin Hoffman, the actor. And he was just reflecting on his career and saying some of the things that had helped him get started when he first began acting and then how his career had progressed um, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, long, long time, decades. 
And the amazing thing about the article to me was that Dustin Hoffman, maybe the greatest actor of you know his generation, he looks back on his career and he says, you know, I've done a lot, but my life is still gripped by fear that I'm not going to get hired for another movie. That it doesn't matter how much he's done, he still lives in fear of no one picking up the phone and calling him and saying, we'd like you to act in this movie this next year. And I thought, that that is amazing, but it also hits it, I think, an experience that we all have, and that's just living in, in fear a lot. Um, fear of so many things that it would take us all day to name them. I was having lunch with a professor over at UAB last fall, and I said, you know, you've been here for a while. What do you think students at UAB really struggle with? And he said one word, fear, that they walk around campus and they lay their bed on their pillow at night afraid. And that has been in my mind this past year. And then I read this article this past weekend. If that's you, this passage tonight is especially for you. We're in the Gospel of Mark again, and we're looking at chapter 3. We've got a pretty good chunk of passage to cover, so hang with me. But I want to try and answer two questions from this passage tonight. And the first is, who do the unclean spirits say Jesus is? And the second is, who do the scribes say Jesus is? Who do the unclean spirits? And then second, who do the scribes? Can I get somebody to bring me a cup of water? Anybody? Thanks, Jeff. So, first, who do the unclean spirits say that Jesus is? And if you look in verse 11, this is fairly obvious. It says in verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So, these unclean spirits say, Jesus You're the Son of God. Now, why would they do that? And then why would Mark, the author of this gospel, why would he want us to know that? And this is what I want you to see. First, the unclean spirits in this passage, that's a uh, kind of a, a strange idea that there are these spirits who are unclean, but it's all connected to the Jewish heritage, of course, that the gospels are written in, where you have clean and unclean from the book of Leviticus. And there are these spirits that were believed to sort of haunt the idols and the idol worship in the Old Testament. And they were not the Holy Spirit, but they were sort of the opposite of that. They were unclean spirits. And in the Bible, they're basically the same thing as demons. Thanks a lot, Jeff. So when he says unclean spirits, he wants us to basically understand these are the same thing as demons. If you look down towards the end of the passage... It's the scribes who also say, you have this demon called Beelzebul. Uh, In verse 30, the scribes are saying, you have an unclean spirit. And so, during the ministry of Jesus, these unclean spirits are basically demons. And when the enemies of Jesus in the Gospels name Jesus, it's normally to mock him. You'll remember when Jesus dies on the cross, his enemies give him a name, don't they? The King of the Jews. And they do so to mock him, to say, oh right, you call yourself the king of the Jews. 
Right. Jesus' enemies name him to mock him. You'll remember too when Jesus is being tempted in the desert, when Satan is tempting him, and Satan says, If you're the Son of God, then why don't you X, Y, and Z? Here in this passage, the unclean spirits are saying, You're the Son of God, as a way to mock him, as a way to tempt him, because they are his enemy and they are bent on his destruction. And really the amazing thing here is what this says about the glory of God. Because it's different than how we might expect. We heard a little bit from Isaiah already in the service. But listen to this from Isaiah 53 in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. And this is the, the context that Jesus' ministry is exploding into. And this demon confronts him and says, Oh, right, you're the Son of God. This is what, you're supposed to be this glorious person. Look what is happening to you. You're spending all your time and all your energy around all these people who are sick and who are demon-possessed. And they don't love you. All they want is the good stuff from you. Look where it says... At the end of verse 9, it's so quick that we would almost just pass right over it in verse 9 at the end. He says, lest they crush him. These people don't love Jesus. They just want to be healed. They want what he has, and they want it so bad that they would kill him for it. They would crush him for it, it says in the end of verse 9. And this demon says, oh, you're the son of God. This is what glory looks like. This doesn't look like glory to me. This is how the demon's trying to tempt Christ. But Christ in his ministry is saying, this is what glory is. It is putting yourself in harm's way, moving into this crowd to the point of risking death itself, spending his time and his energy not around the elite of society, not around kings and queens where he could be, but around people who were sick and dying and demon-possessed. I read another article a couple of weeks ago, and sort of tongue-in-cheek, the author said, you know, bullying really pays off, that we would like to think that nice guys can finish first, but that so often the bully really gets what he wants, and that doing the right thing doesn't necessarily have this quick and immediate payoff. And... What Mark wants us to see here is that glory and goodness doesn't look like triumph. It doesn't look like getting your way. It doesn't look like spending your time the way that you'd like to spend your time. But it looks like serving those who are oppressed. And I think this is the question really that this passage is moving us towards. Like, have you ever had this thought... You're in your house or you're at work 
and you think, you know, this person, they just want to take from me. All I do is give and give and give and give and give, and they just take. They want to take from me, and they don't want to give anything in return. What if Jesus Christ has revealed to us that the true path of glory is putting down our rights and putting down how much respect we think we deserve and putting down what we think glory ought to look like? Well, if you really respected me, this is how you would treat me. Or, well, if they really loved me, then this is the kind of respect I would get. What if Christ has revealed to us that true glory comes in laying down our rights? Laying down our demands that we have of other people and following him in a life of service and pouring out our time on other people. So the first thing that the Son of God, this name uh, teaches us, I think, is something about the glory of God. But the second thing is something about knowledge. If you look in verse 12, the scripture says, And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus orders these unclean spirits, You don't know me at all. You can shout my name in mockery, but you don't know me. And you have no right to go and tell people about me. But then look in verse 14 where he says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Mark is contrasting those who truly know Jesus, who've been with him, and those who don't know Jesus. They know his name, but they don't love him, and they haven't been with him. And Mark is saying these unclean spirits are not qualified to talk to people about who Christ is. It's the apostles who will be with me and who I will send out to tell others about me. What was it that they were preaching? If you look back, um, if you have a Bible with you, you don't have to turn there, I guess, but the beginning of the book of Mark, it says that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This was the content of their preaching. This is not, thus saith the Lord, but if you look back over 2,000 years, the church thinks that the book of Mark is based off of the preaching of the apostle Peter. And so here in this passage, we're getting really the beginnings of the book of Mark that we're reading. Jesus sent out the apostles to tell people about the gospel, this good news. And it's why we have the New Testament to begin with. Um, Later, if you want to look at Ephesians 2.20... It says that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That if you want to really know God, listen to the apostles. And if you want to really listen to the apostles, read the New Testament. Because when we read the New Testament, we bump up against men who walked and talked and ate and slept with the Son of God. That's the amazing thing about what... Sometimes you'll hear the phrase, the apostolic deposit. You ever heard that phrase before? People go round and round about what the apostolic deposit is. And in order to be a true church, you have to have the apostolic deposit. Well, what we know and believe and teach is that the Bible says that the apostolic deposit, if you want to get a hold of it, if you want to be in a church that's centered around the apostles, then pick up the New Testament and read it. 
That is our apostolic deposit. And it gives us true knowledge about who God is. Think about this. I have this really good friend from college. And we see each other every, I don't know, three or four years maybe. But we have a few mutual friends. And I would never tell these mutual friends this. But my favorite thing about bumping into these mutual friends is just finding out about my old friend from college. (laughs) Because this mutual friend loves them too. And has spent a lot of time with them too. And so we can talk about jokes and the things that they love and the things that they hate and this goofy thing that they do with their hands. Or when they're talking, they move their hands like this. And I love this mutual friend because when I'm with them, it's like I'm with my old friend who I love. And that's really what the New Testament is all about. When we read scripture, we are, we are listening to people who knew the Son of God. Who knew him. Uh, whether or not he snored. You know, they lived with this man for two or three years. They camped with him around Israel. And they knew him. Lately I found myself reflecting on, you know, too much Facebook use. And, you know, every six months you sort of reevaluate. Why, why am I on Facebook so much? How can I be on it less? And... Lately, my answer is this, that I am so afraid that there's some bit of knowledge out there that I haven't read yet. There's some article that I haven't been able to get a hold of that's going to really open things up for me and give me the, the big picture so that I can understand things in a way that none of you can. Because I've read that article, or I've read that blog post. But what God's promise is, is that when we go to the scriptures, we find true knowledge. We bump up against a being who's infinite and eternal and unchangeable. Who knew about that blog post before the creation of time. Who knew about that article 2,000 years ago and into eternity. He knew about all those things. And he has said... If you want to know about life, if you want to know about meaning in the world and what it is, then go to what my apostles have said and how it's been laid out in the New Testament. So that's what the unclean spirits say about Jesus. What do the scribes say? And if you look in verse 22 and verse 30, the scribes said the same thing twice, basically. In verse 22, they say that, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So they mention this demon called Beelzebul, who is associated with um, a false god of the Old Testament. That's why he would have been known to the Jews. But then if you look down in verse 30, the scribes also say, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I'm not going to rehash that. We already sort of talked about unclean spirits equals demons, haunted these idols of the Old Testament. 
But I want you to see two things about what the scribes are saying. And it's forgiveness and belonging. What are they saying about forgiveness? So much of the debate about this passage is on what's this sin against the Holy Spirit? What is this unthinkable sin that people might commit that would keep them out of the kingdom of heaven? And that's an important question to try and answer. But in focusing on that question, there's a whole other part about the passage that we miss. And it's this. That God has promised to forgive all sins of all humanity. All of them. All blasphemies, it says. Um, this is the emphasis of Jesus' ministry. Mark starts out, we already looked at, in chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel, which just means good news. What's the good news? John already says in verse 4 that they are... Uh, they're Confessing their sins in order that they might receive the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus comes preaching in chapter 1, he says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And there, believe in the scriptures is just receive the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus' ministry is marked by forgiving people's sins. Remember the paralytic comes down out of the sky. Sorry, out of the sky. Out of the roof. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't heal him. He forgives his sins. Jesus' ministry is marked by forgiving people's sins. And so that's the first main thing that Mark wants us to see here is that there are all sorts of sins that humanity has committed. And God has promised to forgive basically all of them. You'll remember Peter's first sermon. Peter, the one who Mark has based... The book off of Peter's preaching. Peter stands up in the book of Acts and he says, You killed Jesus. And they say, What should we do? And he doesn't say, I don't know what to tell you. You killed Jesus. Instead, he says, Repent and be baptized because he wants to forgive you of that. I know you hated him. And you tried to kill him, but he rose from the dead. But he loves you. And he's kind and merciful and gracious. And he wants to forgive you. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's recounting the sins of his past. And he says, you know what I was before I became a Christian? I was a blasphemer. I blasphemed the name of the Lord Jesus. I rejected his name. And I wanted to drag off to prison anyone that believed in him. And Jesus in this passage says, Whatever blasphemies they utter, all the sins will be forgiven the children of man. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Because what Christ is saying here is that the specific sin that there will no be that, 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 that there will not be forgiveness for I'm stuttering getting nervous just trying to talk about it because it's tricky right it's a little tricky because God has already said I'll forgive you of any sin you could possibly commit but this one and from this passage and from what the rest of the New Testament teaches 
the scripture is fairly clear that it's not only rejecting Jesus. Lots of people rejected Jesus and he forgave all of them. Not once, but you know, seven times seven, seventy times. That's how often you have to forgive your brother. So it's not just rejecting Christ. But it's having a personal experience of the glory of Jesus and then saying that that glory is evil. It's not just saying, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with you, Christ. No, no, no. It's not just becoming an enemy of Christ. But it's looking him in the eye spiritually and saying, yeah, I know about that forgiveness that you're offering. And I know about that mercy that you're offering. And that's evil. And, you know, as we hear that, that just sounds strange. I mean, it's like um, seeing a beautiful sunset and then having someone say, that's just disgusting. We don't do that. And that's how unusual this sin is. That's how unusual this type of rebellion is. Because God's mercy is wide and his grace is deep. And he has promised to forgive all sins. But there will be people who look at Jesus and don't just turn their back on him. But he say, Christ, I know you. And you are not good. And what you're about is evil. And Christ says, for that sin, that person's heart has turned away from Christ and can never be reconciled to him. And that sin cannot receive forgiveness. That person cannot be reconciled to God. And this is the question I want you to ask tonight is, have you underestimated God's mercy in your life? Have you underestimated His grace? What about that sin that you haven't told anyone about that you don't think He can forgive you of? I want you to remember what the Scripture says about the power of confessing your sins one to another. The Bible doesn't say that you have to confess your sin to a priest or a pastor in order to receive forgiveness of it. But it does say that there is power in confessing your sins to another believer. Because the way that God reminds you of how infinite his mercy is, is through each other. Through this fellowship that we have. How might it change your life if this month you found another brother or sister and confessed that sin to them? I was um, together with a good friend of mine this summer and... He confessed a sin to me, and it was so... It, that's unusual, isn't it? For someone to say with, with weight and gravity, and they're, they're not making light of it, but with all seriousness, for someone to confess a sin to you. That, is, that doesn't happen very often, and this, this friend of mine did it, and it, it opened my heart up to, well, I... Yeah, I, I guess God has forgiven you of that, hasn't he? And, you know, he's forgiven me of my sin, too. That is the power of us confessing our sins to each other. But finally, this passage tells us something about belonging. As we answer this question, what do the scribes say about Jesus, that he's possessed by this demon? And Mark wants to see something about belonging. Because the first thing is that you can't belong by just theological knowledge, right? That's who the scribes are. 
The scribes have got it completely wrong. They're, uh, they've you know, gone so crazy that they're accusing Jesus, who's casting out demons, of having a demon. And Jesus says, well, that's crazy. How could I cast out uh, demons if I had a demon? Then I'd be destroying this kingdom of Satan, and that doesn't even make any sense. So you can't belong through just lots of Bible knowledge. The scribes knew their Bible better than me and better than you. So you don't belong through seminary education or just lots of reading your Bible. But neither do you belong through, um, I guess, social uh, closeness to Jesus. Because look in verse 20, where his family actually says of Jesus, he is out of his mind. Just because you share DNA with Christ, it didn't automatically make you belong to him, make you close to him. These people were Jesus' family, and they didn't get it. And then towards the end of the passage, it says, in verse 32, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were with him, around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. To be in Jesus' family, to belong to him, doesn't depend on theological knowledge. It doesn't depend on your social connectedness to Jesus. But it's on doing the will of God, Scripture says. And I think the most amazing thing about this is that he says, if you do the will of God, you're like my mother. And I think especially as a guy, that's really striking. Like, do I really want to be Jesus' mother? I Never really thought of that before. But it struck me when I was picking up my daughter. We have an 11-month-old. And I was picking her up from daycare the other day. And this happens every time I pick her up. But I was thinking about this passage. So I opened the door. And they're, they're you know doing something with the teacher. And... I just kind of peek my head in because I like to watch her for a second before she actually looks at me. And so I'm just kind of, you know, peeking in at her. And finally she turns her head at something and sees me. And it's like her face sort of explodes with a smile. You know the smile that a, ch- a child gives you? Of It's just unearthly joy of... You're mine, right? You're mine. And that's the amazing thing about this passage, is that God is saying, if you want to know if you're mine, if I've got you, you belong to me. If you were doing the will of God, that's how you know. It doesn't depend on how socially connected you are, or how much, whether, whether, whether you know all the answers. And this doing the will of God thing, a big part of that is admitting, I'm just a big sinner and I need grace and I need forgiveness. Help me to obey you. How might that relieve our anxieties in life? A little bit more if we based our belonging in life to whether or not we are doing God's will, turning away from sin, Seeking his forgiveness at the cross. How might that change your life? 
if you base your belonging on that. Well, I will end there, and let me invite you to pray with me as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace towards us. We pray that you would bless your word to our hearts for the glory of your Son, the glory of your gospel, and our good that we might persevere in our faith and not give up. And we pray this in Jesus' name.